Marks. Good to see you. Hi, me too. Good to see you too. Hope your, shall we call it the holiday break, is going well? It, it, it is going well, although I'm a little bit stressed because my exams that were supposed to arrive at my doorstep have not arrived. I think instead somebody took them and put them on my chair in the office. And so while I'm delighted that I don't have them in front of me to grade, I'm also a little stressed because I know there are deadlines and deadlines are not going to move just because the exams didn't arrive. So that that's are, my little anxiety here. You guys are old school. Mine arrived digitally, which is reliable to a fault so that they can immediately start making me guilty within like 30 minutes of the end of my exam. <laughs> well, the reason I wanted to talk to you today is that there's been an interesting set of developments that I suspect you understand much better than I do. But regardless, I'm hoping we can chat about it because there was an extremely interesting post in FD Alphaville from our old friend Jay Newman. I, I often don't agree with Jay, although he's always interesting. Uh, but in this case, he said a number of things that I thought was were worth exploring. And this, of course, has to do with the oh, Argentine YPF award given by Judge Preska for something like $16 billion. And now people are trying to figure out how much of that award will actually get paid by Argentina. New calculations are presumably being made as a function of the new administration in place in Argentina. And there's just so much stuff because of Elliot's victory against Argentina. So Jay's views on this are likely to get a lot of attention. But I'd love to be able to chat with you about this for a short bit, if that's okay. Yeah, I've been, I, I wouldn't say that I've been following the YPF case super closely, but the amount of the judgment that was entered definitely piqued my interest. And I, I like you, I read Jay's piece in the FT and thought it, it raised some interesting points. So sounds good. And especially because, you know, it seems like more and more uh, people are willing to sue foreign sovereigns these days and more and more money is flowing into doing that. And so um, that's got to be an interesting development for people who think about sovereign debt, right? Yes. And and I think Elliot, it's fair to say that Elliot completely changed the game because in their Paripasu litigation against Argentina based on the bonds that defaulted in 2001, they literally got full payment with all sorts of giant bonuses uh, having to do with the France. And then we've seen really successful litigation on the GDP warrants. We don't know what's going to happen with that. So people are uh, salivating at the thought of litigation. And uh, let me just give you my sense of the 
big picture that Jay draws in his piece, and then maybe we can start with that. If if um, I'd, I'd like your reactions to that. So as I read Jay's piece, it has a number of interesting specifics, but the big picture seems to be, look, guys, and he's talking here to all the people who are salivating at the prospect of getting giant recoveries from Argentina. He's saying, uh, we had, we meaning Elliot, had a number of significant advantages in litigating against Argentina. Burford does not have them. And if it does not have them, litigating against a sovereign such as Argentina that is quite skilled and has a lot of experience in hiding assets is going to be an extremely difficult task. And so your optimism may be misplaced and maybe the stock price for Arch for Burford is unduly high. I'm, I'm, I think this was the maybe the implicit message, uh, but it does make me think about all of those unrecovered claims against Russia, for example, for old imperial sovereign debt, or China for the imperial debt and the Kuomintang debt. You know, if some sovereign debt is really hard to recover on. And I think Jay was saying this particular debt may be extremely hard to recover on. Did I kind of get the gist of what he's saying? Yeah, I think I think you did exactly. Although I think maybe it's important to add a few details, one of which is that this isn't really a sovereign debt claim. This is a expropriation claim um, and so it's going to yield a judgment, of course, it did yield a judgment, but maybe there's some value in just keeping that point, uh, keeping that point in mind. I think, um, to my mind, one way to kind of think about this issue, and, and I agree with your characterization of Jay's comment, but one way to think about this issue is, so everyone has Elliot's success against Argentina in mind. And so the question is, I think for a lot of people, was that kind of a one-off, the sort of the combination of having these advantages Jay talks about in the FT piece paired with a really clever litigant who managed to get this super duper but um, uh, unlikely to repeat itself remedy from Judge Grisey in New York. You know, it was the it was the injunction that did it. It's easy to tell that story. There were lots and lots of lawsuits against Argentina. There were one or two tiny successful attachment efforts. But for the most part, all the efforts spent trying to find Argentine assets didn't actually yield any um, actual recoveries, and it was the injunction that did it. So that's that's sort of one one story, and it, it leads you to believe that we shouldn't see a ton of litigation against sovereigns, and most of what we see is not going to be that successful, and, you know, sort of that's the story. But the, the countervailing story is if we step back for a second, it would the number of claimants who sued Argentina and the diversity of their sources of financing was really quite remarkable. Something unlike 
anything we've seen in the sovereign debt context before. And in some ways that resulted from kind of a uniquely bad restructuring process. So one that left lots of prospective holdouts out there. But it also, I think, may have represented something of a sea change in this area where now all of a sudden you have law firms and deep sources of capital that never used to pay any attention to sovereign debt cases. And now they're starting to pay attention. The mere idea that a litigation finance entity like Burford would be involved in this is kind of from this perspective, a sign of the change in the times. And so I that, that kind of tees up the question, which is what rights and kind of ordinary, but very well-resourced creditors bring to bear and how can they monetize them against a sovereign like Argentina? And I definitely have some probably worthless, but some thoughts on that, but I'm not as, I don't know how pessimistic Jay was really meaning to be. And I, I like your comment about how maybe the subtext has to do with Burford's share price, but, um, uh, I'm nowhere near as pessimistic as at least one reading of his his piece would suggest. And uh, the fact that hundreds and hundreds of millions and billions of dollars are pouring into these cases makes me think that other people smarter than me with a lot more at stake than me kind of agree. So can, can I ask you a, a couple of uh, specifics and uh, in particular... I want to start with the injunction because you and Anna many years ago wrote, I would, I think of as the definitive article on understanding the Argentine injunction. And I think it was in the Yale Journal of Regulation. So as I understand Jay's claim, Jay says, look, I mean, one of the, he, he makes a number of arguments, but he starts out by saying, look, we had a really good pari passu clause in our bonds, a very, I think that he uses the term, a very broad clause. And these guys have no clause and that that got us the injunction. Now, this this litigation on pari passu went on forever and Certainly in the original Peru case that Elliot litigated and the Andreas Lowenfeld memo, it was all about the Pari Passu clause itself. And there was a broad clause there and there was a broad clause in Argentina. But as, as the litigation evolved, my impression is that the experts in the field, such as you and people like Lee, although I don't want to put words in his mouth, think that the courts sort of shifted and is really not all about the clause, but it's much more about other circumstances like the stupid law, the lock law that Argentina passed and Argentina's just continued... Uh, uh, sticking of its tongue out at the federal judiciary. And all of that added up to Judge Grisset granting an injunction using his equitable powers. But it's not clear 
that it was so crucially tied to the wording of a particular clause or derived from a particular clause. And if 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 that's right, if that that newer 2016 interpretation is right, then if Argentina misbehaves now, you could still get a Paripasu type injunction, but not not specifically tied to the clause. So would you disagree with Jay saying it's all about the clause? So, so, so hold on a second. First of all, I agree with everything that you just said, but I also think that it's kind of beside the point and not really responsive to what Jay is, uh, what I took his point to be, which was a really a much simpler point and one that it's actually quite hard to argue with. So the remedy, that injunction in the Argentine case made sense because Argentina had promised that it was gonna treat creditors equally. Normally, outside of bankruptcy, there's no real obligation to treat creditors equally. If I have two unsecured creditors and I pay one but not the other, there's you could be disappointed if you're the unpaid creditor, but I've not violated any obligation to you by paying the one but not you. Uh, Argentina in the Paripasu context is unique because it had promised that it was going to treat creditors equally. And so Elliot could walk in. This is a simplified story, but I, I think it gets the the thrust of it, right? Elliot could walk into court and say like, hey, look, they promised to treat us equally and they're not doing it. And when you've had a right to equal treatment that's been infringed, one possible and perfectly sensible uh, remedy, I disagreed with it in the case, but it it kind of makes sense conceptually, is the court can order the the debtor to keep its word and to, to treat people equally. Um, Burford, really like Peterson or whoever the technical plaintiffs are, they're just unsecured creditors. They have no, they extracted no promise of equal treatment from Argentina, not to my knowledge anyway. As I said, I haven't been following this case closely, but I'm taking, uh, I'm taking Jay at his word. And if you're just an unsecured creditor and you've extracted no promise of equal treatment, then it would be complete nonsense for the court to enter uh, injunction. Um, they just, that, that's not a remedy that courts give. Could they get irritated enough and to use their equitable powers? Or is that like you need some kind of contractual hook to use your equitable they powers? And now get... this is revealing my utter lack of understanding of the difference between legal and equitable powers. So apologies. No, no, no. I the, They can. Uh, so if you think of the kind of classic remedy of specific performance, you you can only get that equitable remedy or any equitable remedy if you do not have an adequate remedy at law. And in very rare cases, one of the reasons why you might not have an adequate remedy at law is because the judgment debtor has squirreled all its assets away where you can't get them and won't pay you. And in occasional, again, rare cases, courts do then reach for a specific performance remedy, or even in rare cases, an order to pay, an equitable order to pay. But none None of that does anything. There's no specific performance here. It wouldn't make sense, for instance, to say, um, Argentina, you can't pay your bondholders because you haven't paid you know, claimants under the YPF case. That's not an order of specific performance. That's just totally made up. And while you could order Argentina to pay, it would happily thumb its nose at, uh, at the court and refuse to do it. So the court would have to 
look, never say never, but I'm going to say never. The court would have to invent out of whole cloth an equitable remedy that had no foundation anywhere in the plaintiff's rights if it were to fashion an injunction like the one uh, it used to make Argentina pay. So I, I don't think that's a realistic scenario at all. So, okay, this was that was super helpful and clear. No wonder you wrote the definitive article on that. Can we now move to another topic that you are also the leading expert on? Which yes, is... if, we can, if we can acknowledge that I'm not <laughs> the leading well, expert. Well, I, I, I want to... I, I, the so leading expert on this podcast. <laughs> the The... Jay also made a point about um, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and attachments. So he talks about how in the bond, at least the bonds he held, there were very broad waivers of sovereign immunity, not just uh, from the right of sovereigns uh, to be protected against litigation, uh, but the right of sovereigns to be protected against attachments. And my understanding over the years from you is uh, while novices in this field often confuse the two or can't see the difference, uh, those are two very distinct areas where you might have, a, you might much more easily have a right to sue a sovereign, uh, but it's much harder to get a right to attach the assets. And Jay says that the right to attach assets here, because there's no explicit waiver from the sovereign in a contract, the right to attach is very narrow because the FSIA seems to say something like, you can only attach stuff that relates to the underlying transaction. But then I'm completely, well, I I'll ask you a follow-up question, but maybe can you um, give us some insight on this? Am I getting it kind of, I didn't quote the language because I stupidly don't have it in front of me, but. Yeah, no, you got it, you got it right. The So basically the way, it's important, and this is, I think, a, a qualifier we need to come back to, but it's um, it's important to keep in mind Jay's talking about U.S. law, uh, not the law of other countries. Um, but under U.S. law, if I want to attach property that's owned by a foreign sovereign, I've got to find property that's currently being used for a commercial activity in the United States, which is already hard enough. But then in addition, I've got to show that that property is or was used for the commercial activity on which I founded my claim. So that let's think of that as like a nexus requirement. I, I, I got to find property that's currently being used for a commercial activity in the U.S., and I've got to show some nexus between that property and the activity that uh, that gave rise to my lawsuit. And so here the activity is like the expropriation of shares in Argentina, and it would be very hard to find assets in the United States that were being used for a commercial activity and that somehow were used for the expropriation of YPF. So that's the, the kind of default 
set of rules under the FSIA. And Jay's pointing out that if you have a waiver of the sovereign's execution immunity, that second requirement that I just called the nexus requirement, that drops away. And you can now attach and force an execution sale of property that's used for commercial activity in the U.S., regardless of the nature of that commercial activity. So if you think about Argentina and all of the kind of fun uh, attachment stuff that happened, going after satellite launch rights, um, satellite parts, the presidential airplane, um, pension assets held in investment accounts, all that stuff was at least, first of all, most of it didn't work, but all of that stuff was made plausible by the fact that there was a waiver of uh, execution immunity in the contract. Otherwise, there'd have been no plausible argument that that stuff had a nexus to the issuance of bonds, which was the underlying commercial act. So, Mark, is it so when I read that language, so that that it has to be connected to the underlying activity, it it struck me that there was at least an argument, and you can quash me that what the un, the un, so one way to read the underlying activity here is all privatizations, but another way, I mean. To me, at least, it's conceivable that I could read underlying activity in a much broader way. And a long, long time ago, in my youth, when I did look at some of the legislative history of the FSIA and this particular uh, provision, it struck me, and again, please, nobody hold me to this because I don't remember this very vaguely. Uh, I, I don't remember it well. Um, it struck me that one could, from the legislative history, get a much broader conception of the underlying activity. Uh, now, you you know you know this area much better. Uh, and maybe the language of the statute is so clear that you would never go to the legislative history, although you've taught me never say never in these kinds of cases. Uh, but is it possible that we could read it more broadly? Because it does seem unduly narrow to just say, okay, you can only go after other privatizations, which means you can't go over any after anything. I mean, so... I find it hard to answer this question. I think we would need some specific examples. But remember, remember, even if we were to to somehow say this language was going to be interpreted broadly, and I, I, I have to say, I don't really understand. Like I understand what the word broad means, but I don't really understand the what interpretation you're actually suggesting. Um, you still, under its fairly plain language have to show how the asset that you have found in the United States was somehow used for the activity that generated your claim against Argentina. And the activity was the expropriation of assets. And so I'm, um, you know, maybe if you came up with some, some examples, maybe that would help me sharpen my thinking about this, but I, um, uh, I'm not seeing the point right now. I, I guess the broader point for me is remember the key underlying motivation here, um, which kind of evolved from the post-World War II era and competition with Soviet bloc countries, the, the idea was that you had all of these 
Soviet bloc countries that were competing through government government organizations, either state-owned entities or ministries or what have you, some of which would be viewed as not legally separate from the state itself. And they were engaged in kind of commercial competition with private American entities. And so the idea was like, to the extent a foreign state is doing that, it shouldn't have an unfair advantage. It ought to be subject to the same kinds of enforcement actions that a U.S. private firm would be subject to. And so I think if we want to be kind of functional in our thinking about this provision, it's dealing with a situation where a government entity that is not legally separate from the state itself is engaged as a commercial actor and is doing bad stuff. And then the broad reading would be basically like, you can get the commercial assets in the United States of that entity. That would be about the broadest type of reading I think we could give to it. But again, I'm struggling to see how this really helps uh, an entity like um, Burford in the United States, which is why I I mentioned at the outset that I think we need to think about Uh, collection efforts outside the United States, because this nexus requirement is part of U.S. law and does not exist under the law of many other jurisdictions. So so can we go there? Because that seemed to be also a point that Jay made, uh, which was, this is all about the U.S. And you made this point right at the outset, too. Uh, Maybe maybe we'll need to think about collection, how collection efforts might work in other jurisdictions. But my impression has always been that the best jurisdiction to get a successful action against the sovereign is the US, because if you get something like the Paripasu injunction, which stops anybody from doing business with Argentina so long as Argent- Argentina is not paying, in that case, the bondholders on a pro rata basis. In other countries, Argentina can just thumb their nose at the jurisdiction and say, well, we don't really care what you say because we don't do a lot of business through you. I guess London or maybe Brussels might be a st- equivalent or not uh, maybe partially equivalent jurisdictions or where would you go that would would not have that would have a broader uh, FSIA kind of statute or common law and where it would really they would be able to the sanctions would bite Argentina well i mean so it's an oil YPF is an oil company right so while the the claim is against Argentina. Who knows whose assets will ultimately be put at risk, right? The, um, you know, through alter ego or some other mechanism. But you know, um, yeah. So the U.S. is an important enforcement jurisdiction. I think primarily because you want or need access to U.S. financial institutions to do a lot of transactions. Um, so there's no denying that, right? But to the extent there are transactions um, that Argentina has commercial property in the United Kingdom, in France, I don't know French 
sovereign immunity law well at all. But uh, I think that's probably a a plausible one. Uh, And in many other places around the globe, you know, so it's hardly going to be easy. First of all, you've got this enormous U.S. court judgment. You've got to get it recognized and enforced abroad. And, you know, that doesn't always happen. It's not automatic. You might wind up having to relitigate some of it. So all of those things are problems. But if you can get that judgment recognized and enforced, you at least have the ability to go after Argentine commercial assets in a lot of other places. And, you know, we haven't started talking about whether, uh, you know, YPF's assets could be targeted. Um, You know, the judgment is against Argentina. And, Here's where my ignorance about what actually happened is really going to come clear. Uh, I think the judge kind of declined to enter a judgment against YPF itself, uh, but that doesn't mean you couldn't, through uh, some kind of alter ego theory, go after YPF's assets. So all of this stuff is um, uh, is still to be determined down the road. And, and I don't know. I, when you have a, a sixteen billion dollar claim, even a sort of 1% perspective recovery implies that you can spend $160 million engaged in efforts to attach uh, Argentine assets around the world. And to me, what that means is that Burford is never going away. And at some point, it's going to be much, much easier to pay Burford. It won't they won't get paid as a percentage of their claim anything even remotely like what Elliot did. But at some point, they're going to get paid. I find it really hard to believe otherwise because uh, they'll have enough teeth in their kind of enforcement arsenal that they can just be a pain in the ass everywhere for forever. So, okay, I I know you're sick and tired of the analogies to Russian and Chinese imperial debt, but all of this is sounding a hell of a lot like the people who kept hoping, and some still hope, to collect the billions and billions that, at least in present value terms, are owed on those sovereign debts. And have not succeeded. And many of those firms have disappeared over the years. Many of those firms that were betting on these tiny probabilities of huge recoveries have disappeared. I mean, can't Argentina just I, ignore sorry, who, this? Who bet on what firm like, of remember any size the, bet on getting so, a huge... A huge recovery. I mean, there were like Karl Marx. Yes, yes, but firm. they were. Like, they it wasn't a made-up firm. They were a real, like real substantial firm. So first of all, a lot of many, many decades passed before the law of sovereign immunity changed enough to authorize any kind of enforcement in these cases. Many of them don't even hold securities that were issued with any kind of connection to the United States, and. All of them have what are by now utterly bogus claims, claims that I know that as a kind of a flight of fancy, we can talk our way through all of the issues from statute of limitations to sovereign immunity to wind up getting to like some 
fine. There, there's a non-zero chance that those claims could work and produce a judgment, but it's as close to zero as you can possibly get. And they were never backed by the kind of um, capital and expertise that are routinely backing claims against sovereigns now. So no, I just, I don't see... I don't know why you're reaching for those examples when we have tons of examples like um, litigation that went on for years and ultimately produced a settlement against the Congo um, where creditors basically had just unsuccessful after unsuccessful after unsuccessful effort to attach oil receivables, but made enough of a pain in the ass of themselves and ultimately had enough success that they got paid for every weird one-off contract that uh, is sitting around still unenforced. There are many, many more examples of people who've actually uh, converted into real money, um, you know, viable claims. And I, I have a hard time believing that Burford won't be able to do that with a $160 billion or 16, excuse me, $16 billion judgment. So, and I, I, this also makes me think of uh, the litigation against Cuba that we talked about in one of our prior podcasts. And part of the reason I'm thinking about it is because I've heard that our old friend, uh, Rodrigo uh, Olivares Caminal, who uh, has written a lot about sovereign debt, is involved in the Burford negotiations and was also involved in uh, the Cuban negotiations, and maybe uh, Rodrigo, if you're listening to us, you will come on our podcast and uh, talk to us about uh, the likelihood of recovery. I, I, another uh, aspect that I just I want to bring up, and then we should uh, we we should uh, wrap things up uh, soon, uh, is that Javier. Millet's administration seems to have a number of folks who were uh, part of the Macri uh, team that did, in fact, choose to pay the Elliott claim. And maybe their inclination will be to try and get rid of uh, this nightmarish uh, deal. Although, uh, and I, this was the last thing I wanted to ask you, Mark, and I'm sorry to have meandered. Uh, Jay also mentions in his piece uh, the ongoing litigation. And I don't quite understand. The judge seems to have said, you need to put some assets in here if you want me to stay the attachment. But uh, it seems clear that Argentina is going to appeal to the Second Circuit, and that's going to take a significant amount of time. And then probably they'll uh, try to get cert at the Supreme Court, and that will take more time. And uh, so that th there's a lot of possibilities for delay. On the other hand, would you think it was just really, it would be, it would not be completely unexpected if the Macri team that's back in place says, we're just going to settle this and move on. I mean, I don't know how you settle a $16 billion dollar denominated claim when you have all these other claims pending. Against you. <laughs> I would be, I would be pissed off if I were a holder of Argentine bonds and that happened. I don't know. I mean, 
Uh, I don't think they're going to be able to settle it for so cheap that they could do it in a way that would be palatable. Last I checked, this is 16 billion. Is, I mean, of course, they're not going to pay 16 billion, but it's like more than current FX reserves, as I as I recall, or at least it's around it's around that, um, and maybe significantly more. Anyway, I am. Um, so I don't know. I it's hard for me to see a settlement happening soon. But I, like I say, I haven't really been paying that much attention. Well, I, I sorry, go on. I, I was just going to say I do like what the judge did. Since so fine, you can't. You only get a stay if you can bond the the judgment, and nobody can bond a sixteen billion dollar judgment. And so Argentina has, in some kind of abstract sense, a compelling argument for a stay, except that everybody knows Argentina has no intention ever of paying the judgment. And so I thought Judge Preska's way of handling that was quite um, uh, quite amusing and quite appropriate. If I remember right, she basically was like, well, sure, if you want to tender all of the, like the remaining YPF shares into court as a way of partially bonding the judgment, I'll give you your stay. Um, <laughs> otherwise, no. And um I can only assume Argentina will not be tendering the rest of the shares. Yeah, Judge Preska seems to be a quite a different kettle of fish than Judge Grisset. So uh, th this this is going to be fascinating to watch as as it evolves. But thank you so much, Mark, for indulging all of my questions. My sense is that. Uh, you are m much more optimistic about the possibility of at least some recovery uh, than I was initially. And I, you have certainly persuaded me on every single one of the points that, that there, there's, there, there's a real possibility of, of recovery here. Uh, it, it won't be the 16 billion, but if I'm, if you may, if you might indulge me, in one last question that's not really related directly to this. It has to do with maybe the final point that Jay makes, uh, which I, I was really surprised at the end. He said, you know, Argentina's debt is trading at a deep discount already. They don't have any money. Millet has promised all sorts of kooky things like dollarization, which are hugely expensive, and he has no money to do the dollarization because dollarization will require having a lot of dollars. And Jay says, you know, maybe you should just default on everything. And I'm thinking, okay, Jay probably doesn't hold any bonds. If he does hold some bonds, that is he really saying go ahead and default? But uh, how does the $16 billion affect all of the bondholders who do have pari passu and waivers of sovereign immunity and can they ignore this or th this is affecting everybody's or the gdp warrant claim the people who have the billions of dollars in claims on that so i mean i would have i, I don't think anybody 
any bondholder is at risk of having payments to them be enjoined. Uh, although I don't think that's what you're you were necessarily. No, I was thinking to. like there's let's if Jay is correct, like there's just Argentina soon in the very near future is just going to have to default on everybody. Like they read Jay's Alphaville thing and they're like, yeah, Jay says we should just default on everybody and then renegotiate with everybody. Don't you kind of think that that's more than a little plausible? Yeah, if Jay's saying it, I'm thinking this is highly plausible. I mean, in they've fact, they've had 16 billion added to their debt stock. Right? Yeah, and we're worried. We've been worried about trade creditors and other kinds of claimants in the context of Venezuela. Even those who don't have promissory notes, who who aren't going to be suing on prom notes, who have other claims. You know, I mean. These creditors matter, right? And they're gonna, you can kind of leave them out of a restructuring and deal, expect the country to deal with them floating around out there for forever. But yeah, I mean, I, it's hard for me to imagine Argentina actually dealing with this claim outside the context of a restructuring. Yeah, I mean, the more I think about it, it makes sense to say, look, we just can't pay you all. We're going to, we're going to go into default, or at least you should know that that was what will happen. And we're willing to renegotiate all of your claims. Could, I could be wrong about this, but I think this would be really hard to do while you're in the middle of your, you know, big dollarization. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that train is not gonna ever. <laughs> that's never going to arrive. The dollarization train, but, but who knows? Um, uh, I I hear that our old friend Andres de la Cruz might be might be involved in some of these negotiations, and so. Uh, you know, maybe maybe things will uh, proceed in a much more sensible fashion than they have in prior administrations. But thank you so much, Mark. Thanks, me too.